Shall we jazz? <laughs> Shall we like count like three, two, one? Welcome everybody to a new episode of Data Minds. Um, I'm Chris Peters, the CEO of Data Minded, and today I'm joined by uh, Seb Delatay. Hi, Chris. Uh, hi, nice to meet you. Um, well, and he's going to tell his his entire story, right? So, so he he. I won't do any introduction. I'll let him do the introduction. Uh, can you maybe in five minutes describe who you are and, and, and what's your story? Sure. So I'm a tech entrepreneur and um, I had the pleasure of creating one of Belgium's big scale-ups called uh, Reactor. We work in the space of big data applied to the telecom industry. Um, just before I talk about Reactor, like my background in two seconds is I'm a business engineer by background. So studied at Solvay in Brussels. Um, that's really the place where I found a taste to mix you know, like business studies with tech, um, maths, physics. I was a physics assistant at university. Um, from Solvay, I started my career at McKinsey. That's basically a point of my life that I really loved, met amazing people, learned amazing skills, um, particularly how to speak with CEOs. So my communication skills were really refined during my time at McKinsey. Slides, I guess. Making slides <laughs> and Excel models. <laughs> I'm an Excel black belt man. Be careful for my Jedi. You know, like, um, but um, but the, the thing that was fun with, let's say, that background is um, the, the bridge between tech and business is a very rich bridge. You know, like, and it's really, I'm always convinced that when you create that connection, that's when you create the most amazing things, whether it's business value, whether it's social value. I mean, it's there that it happens. Um, and so in my background, you'll always see that those two components have been very mixed. When I decided to uh, leave McKinsey just, just after being promoted, it was really because I felt that that company was great, that there are lots of people that are going to have a great time being consultants, um, but I was really a, an entrepreneur by DNA and so wanted to create companies, make them grow. That's what that's what excites me. The, um, Actually, when with my co-founder and best friend, Lake, uh, Lake Jacobs, when we created Reactor, we created three companies. And Reactor at the time called Real Impact Analytics was, was just one of those three. I never and knew that. Did you create three companies? We there? created three companies. Look, I mean, it's the best way to fish, right? You, know, like, <laughs> uh, you put several rods and then you see what bites. And, yeah. um, and in one of the rods basically uh, went bankrupt. You know, like, uh, <laughs> the other one... Um, we never sold, you know, like, so the sales cycles were very, very, very long. And so we had a good product, we had a good offering, there was interest, but we never sold. So that's kind of a good way to give up right away. And uh, Real Impact, what was interesting was, you know, like I, I said, okay, well, there's this new trend. At the time, it was business intelligence, you know, like uh, that was the buzzword at the time, BI. And, um, and so I would go to different companies within Belgium and they say, okay, well, look, um, we're 25, we're excited, you know, like, uh, we'd like to be part of this BI trend, uh, would you like to work with us? And uh, companies like Telenet or companies like uh, Proximus, Belgacom at the time, looked at us and said, you know what, Tiger, why don't you go do this with someone else and then come back? And um, that's precisely what we did. We went to Africa, um, we contacted one of, our, uh, one of my old clients at McKinsey, uh, who said, okay, well, look, we'd love to work with you. We have these big problems around geomarketing. Uh, we have no idea of what's our performance in this area versus that area. We don't know where to attack, where to defend. Um, a very basic business need. 
but for which they had no data whatsoever. And when we arrived in, in Côte d'Ivoire, what we set up was a very simple pivot table in Excel. So not rocket science, not, not advanced analytics, not big data frameworks, just a pivot table where you had KPIs per town. And based on that very simple um, Excel model that we would deploy in two weeks with training and that we would like uh, invoice for 20,000 euros, um, we really had the genesis of a minimum viable product. And that was a very fortunate start, a very lucky start, because neither Loïc uh, nor I had any idea that what we had in our hands would turn into you know, like uh, one of, of Belgium's, Belgium's big scale-ups. And what we had in our hands with that Excel model was quickly going to turn and grow into first like custom IT, mm-hmm. um, then you know like uh, app development, and uh, and then how to make the big data frameworks work within this this product management, you know like uh, framework, you know like uh, yeah. yeah 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 absolutely. So so when when you were still doing Excel, it was just you and Loic like on a plane to to uh, Cote d'Ivoire and. and copying, pasting the data together yourself and trying to come up with answers? How, how yeah, exactly. And so in the beginning, it was Côte d'Ivoire. We were there around, you know, like um, the civil war where uh, Laurent Gbagbo got ousted um, by the military and then there were elections. Yeah. Um, after that, we ended up in Liberia uh, where the shareholder of the telecom operator um was one of Charles Taylor's best friends. You know, like, so Charles Taylor is the guy who's in charge of the genocide in Liberia. Uh, we ended up in Guinea-Bissau during a military coup that they did on April Fool's Day. So go call you know, like journalists, you know, like ambassadors or your family on April Fool's Day to say that there's a military coup in Guinea-Bissau. Everyone laughs at you. Yeah. But so that whole period, the beginning of, of, of Real Impact was as roots as you can imagine. You know, like um, we didn't have a garage, but we had a shady airport lounge <laughs> in every African capital that you can name. <laughs> you know, like um, we we were absolutely crazy. We'd go into places that no one would go to. You know, like um, we we applied for you know, like the uh, Excel model was called the War Room. You know, like uh, it was in the war room that you'd see the KPIs of every town, and so we went and deployed the war room in Sudan. The problem is that when you apply for a visa to Sudan to say, "Well, what are you going to do in Sudan? <laughs> We're going to implement a war room," <laughs> you get arrested. You yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we had the same joke in Afghanistan, and and so we we went to all these crazy places. And I think it's one of the reasons why Real Impact really kicked off. It's because. We were young and crazy. We were not afraid of going into countries that no one wanted to go to. And you actually realize that that's one of the reasons why we were able to grow so fast. It's because our competitors, who are generally very big IT and, and consulting companies, you know, like it, would, it, would, it would happen often that we'd be in competition with Microsoft Africa, with um, IBM. And, and these companies didn't want to have business in Afghanistan. Mm. They, they'd go there if they were really obliged by one of their big international clients. But the actual local companies, they said, those guys, they're not interested in our business. You guys from Belgium, you don't mind coming here. You're fun. You, like, uh, you deliver extremely professional work and you do the follow-up of your work um, all, all, all time long. And 
And that's how we managed to create relationships with clients that are still there today, yeah. nine years afterwards. Yeah. So, so your strategy was on purpose as, as like the Proximus and Telenet said, no, like I, I need to go to, to Africa, to the countries that are a bit underserved at the moment. But then having the risk or, yeah, let's say risk of working in rough, in rough areas, I would guess, right? So there's, there's a real difference between um, what was imagined, what was the strategy and in like ex ante before you launched. And then what you saw, oh, well, when I look back, this is actually what happened. Um, in reality, uh, there was no strategic plan. You know, like we were basically going where the clients were telling us to go. Yeah. Um, but that's the whole thing with, you know, like a product market fit is that if at some point you see that there's a boom in the demand, it's basically because you're doing something particularly right that others have not addressed, yeah. either because they don't know about the opportunity or because they've decided not to pursue it. And um, it's true that you know, like for us, who had, you know, like fresh from university, we had our first job, the idea of selling an Excel model for 20,000 euros for two weeks of work. I mean, I remember at the time saying, oh, that's, that's nearly half of my yearly salary <laughs> just in two weeks work. Yeah. You know, like, um, and what I didn't realize is that for a corporate, I could have said 50K yeah. that he would have bought it anyway, you know, mm -hmm. like, um, because that level of budget is so small yeah. um, that there was really nothing. Um, I mean, the CEO didn't need, the CEO could have had budget authority on that amount by himself. Yeah. He didn't need anyone else's approval. He could just sign the paper and that was it. Yeah. And, and those dynamics, we were lucky because we did something right from the start. And so directly there was traction. Yeah. Um, with hindsight, because when you have a few years of doing this and then you look backwards, indeed, going to emerging markets was one of our best moves. Because if we had been yet another player, not just Belgium, but in Europe, yet another player in the U.S., we would have been in a very, very big pool filled with fish. Yeah. You know, again, the odds that we would have been eaten up would have been pretty high. Going to emerging markets meant that we had close to no competition. We had access to all of the data in the world. We're going to talk about data in a minute, but regulation is uh, lower in Africa. And because the overall skill level is different than the skill level you have in Europe or in the U.S., we basically had clients that were very keen to give us access to everything and say, can you find something interesting in all of this data? Um, and that allowed us to learn the telecom field much better and much deeper than, um, than what actual European or American telcos knew themselves about their own data. Yeah. Um, and that was the real critical smart move. You know, like... Um, it paid off. Thanks to that, we were able to become a significant player in the telecom big data space um, to have references, client references, but also use cases that were really, really um, top-notch amongst the best in the market. And it's from that experience that we were able to pivot towards a product company and say, okay, well, now let's develop apps. Let's develop apps on all of this know-how that we've accumulated during several years. Yeah, that's interesting, and I can definitely relate that um, uh, if you if you don't have any client yet, finding your first client was for us also like the most difficult thing. Like like there was a lot of doors just when were closed all the time, no matter what you did. 
But then the moment you have a track record, then I think you de-risk it a lot from the client's perspective because they say, okay, they have done it a few times already, so they, they must be doing something well, otherwise they wouldn't be here anymore, right? Uh, so I can definitely relate to that. Um, maybe what I would also be curious to know is, so you started with you and Loic um, on an airplane in a lounge. Uh, at some point, uh, Real Impact Analytics uh, or Reactor turned into a company of what, 150 people or 130 people or something. Can you share a bit about the growth? How, how did you hire your first, the first employee, the first person? And, and how, how did you manage to scale that up quite big? Because indeed, I don't know a lot of Belgian companies who went from zero to, well, to more than 100 employees in, in, in a couple of years in the end, right? Yeah. So, yeah. so I, 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 you know, I, I clearly think that Reactor is one of those 10 examples of the latest wave, you know, because... If you go really back, you know, like you can say Skynet, you know, like, uh, was yeah. a big one, you know, like, and so the, there are other companies that reached, you know, like critical sizes. But if you look at the recent younger tech entrepreneurs, you know, like clearly companies that have gone over 100 employees, they're, they're about 10, you know, like, um, yeah. and, and there's some amazing companies, Colibra, Showpad, uh, Team Leader, Odoo. These are all companies that have still an incredible potential to continue to grow, but who went through those type of growth growth cycles. On our side, you know, like typically, you know, like I separate a few phases. There was a first phase um, that was really the starter phase. That, that was when we were between zero and 10 people. I actually call that the founding team phase, as opposed to founders, which were just two people. We actually needed 10 people for this adventure to become what it became. Uh, and so in that beginning, the founding team, how we attracted them was word of mouth. It was looking at who were your friends, people that you knew were smart from university. Um, and in the beginning, we had more business engineers. Then we convinced engineers. Um, then we basically had that one friend that would that had done a PhD in applied maths, um, Gauthier Krings. And then basically with all of those different people, we said, well, you know what? These 10, we have enough brains to... to <laughs> To make something exciting here. You sure did. Um, and and that's one of the things that, one of the advice that um, we followed from Netflix, which was always attract um, the best people because they will in turn attract even better people. Yeah. You know, like uh, you need, you. it really depends on what division you want to play in in football. But uh, there's no point in attracting a B player because the only effect it's going to have is scare away the A players. And so that was a really strict criteria, which was we always wanted to recruit people that were smarter than the founders. Um, and, and we were able to create that first you know, like a set of people. And in that phase, it was pretty fun. Everything needed to be created. Um, and what's difficult at that time is that you go through the normal crises of a young company. For example, the first time that you need to have a decision-making process, there's a crisis. The first time you need a vacation planner, there's a crisis. The first time you actually need to fire someone, there's a crisis. The first time we pay different salaries, not everyone gets paid the same. You know, like, uh, that creates a crisis. And so that's the typical first phase where you see if you know, like the sauce takes well, you see if the people get along, you see if the clients like what we produce, and, um, um, and you go through these crises. Generally, most people do because they're documented. They're not very difficult. They're small crises. Um, then you go into the second phase where you're between 10 to 30 people. Mm. And there it's a very different ballgame. 
you know, like um, de facto, you have dynamics around delegation, around teams forming, around culture, around values. And so that phase um, is, is a different phase. It's a bit more complicated than the first one. It's followed by another phase where you're between 30 and let's say 60 people. Um, and then the final phase is when you're above 60 and you go towards the hundreds, the changes are less, you know, like, uh, less critical. Um, it's kind of same as before, but just continue to scale the process as you would. You need need more computation power if you had a larger data set. You yeah, know, like yeah. um, once you've once you've got your cluster set up, it doesn't really matter if you have 50 more employees, 100 more employees, etc. Um, across those different phases, you see. So the starter one, um, the the 30 to 60, um, the 60 to uh, plus. Um, what, what was amazing was we were doubling in size um, roughly every year. Yeah. That meant that every year you had half of your employees that were in the company for less than one year. Yeah. And that's, that creates a whole set of challenges, particularly around values and culture, because that means that every year you have people that come with their own background, with their own preferences, and that shape your company. You know, like, because... They absorb how you work, they absorb how you think, but they also shape, they also contribute. Um, things change. And, um, and that's one of the very difficult things to do as your demand is doubling or tripling every year. Um, and as basically everything in your company needs to be set up at the same time. Because that's that's also a possibility, right? If, if you're doubling in size every year and you see you're struggling a bit, just you can decide to slow down, right? Or was that never an option for you guys? So um, it, it's it's a very essential question, which is how ambitious do you want to be and what type of growth are you are, do you desire and are you okay. able to tackle? Yeah. Um, and clearly we had kind of the basis for us was we're excited by high growth. We're excited by creating a very big company. Yeah. Uh, let's get over that Belgian trait, which is small is beautiful. Yeah. Yes, small is beautiful, but you know, like having international companies is also beautiful. <laughs> you know, like, um, and I'm super proud to be here in Leuven, where basically we have the biggest brewer in the world. Yeah. But you know, like, um, that is not a random, uh, or it's not ugly because it's big. No, it's it's terrific. Yeah. And so, in Belgium, we sometimes are a bit shy or modest about being ambitious, and and so clearly we said, let's be one example of one company that wants to be ambitious. Um, so growth was always the high priority. We were able to generate growth with our client base. And, um, and so then the next question was, how much growth are we able to deliver? Yeah. Um, and you know, like at, at the biggest growth cycle was when we passed from something like 40 employees to 100. That was our, our biggest and the steepest uh, curve. At that time, it was... Uh, one of the one of the most tense periods of everyone's life at Reactor, because that's when we were working on average at 140 percent utilization. Yeah. So there was double staffing, there were double projects. Um, there was always too much work, always. Mm -hmm. And actually, that was probably one of the best periods in terms of productivity because we all knew that there was not enough manpower to do everything that needed to be done in a day. Yeah. And so the trade-offs we were making were incredibly efficient. They were always versus how am I going to get as much shit done today as possible? Yeah. 
Um, but you see this whole dimension about growth is we if we had slowed it down, mm. um, I'm not sure that it would have um, necessarily been beneficial. You know, like um, there there is a benefit in being in a dynamic where everything uh, grows because it, it creates momentum. It creates yeah. common um, uh, objectives. It creates common priorities. Um, and then it gives you a sense of we're all in the trenches together. Yes. You know, again, that's yeah, very, yeah. very important to create bonds. I remember the, the first time I, I met, um, back then was Real Impact Analytics. I'm not sure if I met you, but I had a meeting uh, with, with Simon uh, in, in the old Flagey building where you were. And it was like the last week before you moved out to the new bin, to, to, to Bastion. And it was such a beehive. I should have filmed it. Like you, you saw like like engineers almost crawling over on top of each other to get work done. You had like a, a foosball table there with like three engineers standing next to it, hacking code. Like indeed, like, there was a, a special atmosphere that you can't just create if you walk into any any normal company, right? You you could see there was something that something was moving there. It was pretty cool to see. And yeah. and you know the thing which was the thing that was like uh, for me amazing at that time is we had no idea of what it meant to pivot from a service company to a product company. We kind of said that because we thought it was cool. We said that because everyone would say that in the industry. Mm-hmm. And we said to ourselves, oh, let's be very financially intelligent. You know, like um, product companies have higher valuations than service companies. It's just true, so, right? so, <laughs> We could have a multiple of 20 on our recurring revenue. Yeah. Uh, let's no-brainer. Let's convert into a product company, and and it's crazy because we had really no idea what we were talking about. You know, like uh, <laughs> we were clueless. You know, I, like, I appreciate um, the honesty. No, no, but I mean, <laughs> like the like um, pivoting is not as cool as it sounds. You no, know, like no. um, is is my real key message. But the 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 thing that was amazing is that. Um, when we started the pivot, uh, yeah. we did it basically at a moment when the service business was really peaking. Mm-hmm. And um, and before we took the decision to pivot, we said, well, let's start and recruit some like software engineers because those people are super rare. You know, like, uh, do you know a software engineer, someone that's available for hire? You know, like, uh, and and everyone would start start laughing and saying, these guys, you know, like, uh, they're super rare, they're super difficult to recruit. And it took us around six months to find the first one or two that said, well, you know what, you guys, you sound pretty crazy, um, but I, I think that what you're going to be launching is going to be fun. So let me join. And as soon as we started having that first group of two, three software engineers, then it was pretty fast to go from two, three to five, six to 10. Yeah. Um, and then that's when we said, look, we have an ability to attract software profiles. Let's start this pivot it's going to take six months to from an organizational point of view from a technical point of view go from a service company to a product company and it's going to take us one year to to pivot the clients commercially from a service business model to a product business model because i can imagine that also how, how did your sales team react to that message like hey we're i mean you've been selling projects for for years now now you're going to sell a product what so i think you know like there was both there was a resistance to change because people said oh it's going to be more difficult and they were right yeah. um but on the same side since a lot of those people were also shareholders they said well maybe you know like this is worth the effort you know like um 
And, um, and if we manage to make that work within a year, then this is a really, really good deal. But once again, I think we entered that process because we didn't have the experience of what a real product company is and because we didn't have the experience of pivoting one company from one to the other. Yeah. And it's because we didn't have that experience that we were crazy enough to do it. Um, <laughs> with, with hindsight, um, I think it's a decision that would be, would be worth revisiting. You know, like I'm typically saying, well, real impact it's, it even sounds like a, soft, uh, like a service company. Yeah, right? It's got the name of a service company. And so that company was running. Yeah. We could have actually accepted that it have defocus, that it does any industry, you know, like, and that we just be yet another one of those players who yeah. does analytics instead of Deloitte or instead of Accenture. But, and happy days, right? And, and happy days. Happy days and yeah. good money. Yeah. And, uh, and I think with hindsight, that would have been a company that would have let grow Yeah, you know, like, um, and uh, and Reactor uh, would have benefited from being set up as on a as a separate entity, yeah. like with a different payroll with investors, and that we basically go through the cycles of you know, like um, MVP, you know, like first client, then kind of finding finding the problem solution fit before you go seek the product market fit. And uh, because we tried to do both of those things at the same time, yeah. we created a huge amount of complexity because those six months turned out to be one year <laughs> to change the organization. Yeah. Um, and that one year to convert the clients yeah. turned out to be three years. Yeah. And when you get these type of assumptions wrong, because you don't have the experience in doing these type of transformations, um, it just translates into a lot of uh, costs. You know, like, mm -hmm. so a lot of money thrown out of the window, a lot of frustration because things are not moving fast enough. Um, and at some point, you doubt, you know, like, are we going to get to destination or not? Yeah, of course. Um, and people who read the Lean Startup say, oh, well, it's really cool to pivot. Mm -hmm. um, but actually, when you talk to investors, not founders, um, when they hear you're in a pivot, they get very stressed. Ah, they say, okay. well, why don't you come and see me after the pivot? And then once you've succeeded in your pivot, then I'm happy to discuss whether we would invest or not. Um, but that other side of the, um, of the table, what does it illustrate? It illustrates that actually pivots are generally fatal moments for young structures. Yeah. Um, and so people who read Lean Startup think that it's incredibly cool to pivot and that they should do it because it's part of the learning cycle. Whereas what the book really says is that you should pivot whenever necessary, but know that it's a survival move. You know, like know that you should not take those type of moves lightly. Yeah. And, um, and when the investors give you that perspective to say, well, come and see me only once the pivot is finished, yeah. shows that we're actually one of the lucky few who managed to successfully pivot, put 90% of our clients into a recurring business model that was an app that is an app model. Yeah. Um, and in that process, go from a service company of 80 people that could do whatever the client wanted on any type of telecom need to basically a company that sells two products. Yeah. There's one for emerging markets around sales and distribution optimization, and there's one for developed markets around CapEx optimization. And those are the two only things that we're going to be selling. Yeah. Um, that, that pivot was a, the, was a real... A real yeah. huge learning. I, I guess also financially because, uh, well, you, you were a bootstrapped company, right? So you always um, live from your own profits, unless I'm mistaken. But then you decided to pivot 
And then you needed to do that pivot on, well, on bootstrapped capital and only then you could raise money from, from investors, right? Yes. Yeah. And, and so, you know, like typically it's pretty amazing to say to yourself that you grow a company from nothing to 100 with basically yeah, operational cash flow. You know, like, so that, that was a really fun process and it was always stressful, right? You know, like uh, the yeah. first day I sent an invoice about. for a million dollars, I was like, whoa, this is, this is another league. You know, like, um, and by the way, when that million dollars is one month late, you know, like, uh, it's horrible because, you know, like everything crashes, you know, like everyone gets tense and that invoice needs to be paid from Nigeria, you know, like, uh, and so go tell your banker, yeah, we're a bit late on payments and it needs to come from yeah. Nigeria, you know, like, waiting uh, for a million dollars from a Nigerian prince. Uh-huh. 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 Yeah. And, and you know, you're going to get the money and, and, and you, and we got paid from all sorts of crazy countries but um but it's very very tense but that bootstrap um dynamic we basically managed to bring it when we were around 100 um and that's when we basically said okay well now we have a runway Mm. we have visibility at the point where uh we should basically change the funding strategy Uh, and that's when we started to basically raise funds um we had been using leverage and debt from banks for for a while already and so it was really time to say, okay, well, you know what? We've been bootstrapping for a fair amount of time. Now this company needs different levels of funds in order to sustain its growth and finish the pivot. Um, and that's basically when, when we went towards the, the venture capital. Do you think you can do a product company without venture capital? Yes, I'm convinced. I think the, the, the key point is people often you know, like have misconceptions around um, you know, like, uh, ownership and funding. And so the typical, let's say, young entrepreneur or first-time entrepreneur perspective is to say, well, if I create a, comp- a product company, I need to raise funds. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. And, and so that's a fallacy. Actually, uh, if you're a developer and you're able to create an MVP, you can have your early client base pay you a symbolic, you know, like uh, 100, 200, 500 euros per year, mm-hmm. and that generates you know, like income. You know, right. like... Um, and uh, and if you're touching a really nicely scalable problem, well then, you know, like 200 euros per year times you know like a uh, thousand users, you know like with that you can already have three, four, maybe five developers uh, fresh out of uni working for you. Okay, yeah. so um, this whole notion of saying how can you very quickly confirm the value you create? How better a way to prove that than with getting a small amount of money paid back? You know, like, um, and it's silly, but they're developers who created Winamp. You know, like, they're developers who created very easy, you know, like, um, softwares that are used by hundreds of people, you know, like, uh, video editing software, but that you only need to pay once 10 euros. Yeah. You know, like, well, those guys actually have confirmed the value of their product with a very easy price point. Um, and I always prefer people who generate value with, um, uh, with the client pain than those who basically always say, oh, well, we're going to create a community and then one day we'll figure out the business model. The second fallacy in a, a first-time entrepreneur's thinking is, oh, well, um, opening my capital is a bad thing. You mm-hmm. know, like um, they often say, I need to bootstrap because I want to keep 100% of the company. Mm-hmm. And actually there, there's a real flaw, you know, like even economical flaw of, is it better to have... Um, 100% of something which is not funded to grow correctly yeah. versus having 80% uh, 
of something which is funded and that will probably double in size uh, or will grow twice as fast as the one which is not correctly funded. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and that's really the dimension where I say uh, it's not that important to have a high percentage of ownership. Mm. You can actually have lots of mechanisms to maintain your ownership. You can have warrant plans. You can have different voting classes. And so when people say, yeah, but I always want it to be my company. Yeah, well, there are ways to do that. Oh, I want to have most of the upside in what I sell. Well, then, yeah, the best way to do that is to bring in revenue. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The faster you bring in revenue, the faster you can have higher valuations. And then whatever funding you get yeah. dilutes you less. Yeah. Um, but but there's, there, there's this misconception with the entrepreneurs that um, I need to keep everything and that I need to be bootstrapped. Uh, mm. You know, like... Uh, mm. I would guess, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit more of the, the second case where, I'm, well, I'm, we're doing services, so we don't need to raise capital, but um, I would be concerned not about giving away equity per se or giving away value or about the money, but it's more about control. Um, how was it for you, like the moment you got VCs on board? Before that, well, I don't know, how, how was your life before, um, as a CEO, before you had venture capitalists and how was your life after? Did it change dramatically or? So, then, you know, like, from, VCs are not very different than all sorts of other types of partners that you can attract to the mm -hmm. adventure you've created. Mm -hmm. um, and just VCs like, you know, like a, resellers like implementation partners like outsourcing partners you know like these are all companies that come in all shapes and sizes um, and so there's some VCs that are humongous and that are only going to accept to put you know like majority stakes at very high valuations and to take you out just not like you'll have very small VCs uh, who will only want to put one million for a minority stake and you need to be in the Benelux to basically be eligible. Yeah. Um, and the reason why I'm mentioning partners rather than VCs is because undeniably, you know, like um, the um, most value is created when founders and their partners work hand in hand yeah. in the long-term interest of the company. Yeah, uh, yeah. that's you know, an like, obvious one, but not it's, always... It's easy. obvious, but people forget that. Yeah. You know, like, um, they forget that, and then you hear all these market stories about this VC was a real pain for this entrepreneur or vice versa, and you actually realize that because they come in all shapes and sizes, mm. when you choose your partner, you need to make sure that you're very much aligned on how, you know, like, uh, what are you aspiring for, how are you going to manage good situations and maybe how are you going to manage less good situations? And with, with hindsight, you know, like one of the things that I learned is um, we had a lot of hopes in the partnership between our investors and, and the founder group. Mm -hmm. um, and when we were confronted with difficult realities at Reactor because we had our period of high growth and we had a period where we had a pretty big crisis, um, It was a crisis, by the way, just for the parenthesis, that was at one time we had our shit storm where in Brazil there was a political crisis and so all of our revenue in Brazil disappeared. In Africa, there was a foreign exchange crisis. So from one day to the next, we cost 40% more. Yeah. And so our sales went down by 40%. Yeah. Um, fortunately, in Europe, we managed to create a business line from nothing. Um, but 
But you see, all of these things together meant that we delivered 10% growth instead of delivering 100% growth. Um, and when you're sized to deliver 100% growth, that means you've been burning quite a lot of money. And so the reason why I was mentioning this crisis that Reactor went through is not only because we were able to survive, we were able to reorganize the company and make it an even much better company than what it was before. But when that happens uh, with a partner that basically then starts saying, oh, well, our interests are not aligned, our way of managing the company is not aligned, well, that, that's going to potentially put the company on the floor. You know, like, yeah. um, and so the divergence that can appear between partners um, is extremely, extremely important. And that's a point that I'd invite other entrepreneurs to look at when they think about this. Um, when, whether you're in a service company or in a product company, I mean, in a service company, imagine that tomorrow you'd say, oh, well, Chris, you want another um, person to join that's going to be senior, mm. uh, that's going to have responsibility for recruitment, responsibility for client relationships. And that, that's a new partner you're bringing in. Mm. And imagine that that guy turns out to be like a very uh, a complete diva or a very acid person, someone that actually destroys culture within data mined. Well, that's just as bad as having an investor um, that basically uh, diverges in the intention of, of, of or in his vision of what the long-term interest of the company is. Yeah. Um, and then that divergence the organization needs to manage. And, and that can be very, very damaging. So, so it's a matter of, of selecting your partners really well. And you know, like today, obviously, I would select partners differently than how I did two years ago. Um, but one of the things that I would do differently is, first, I would not work with a partner that has never done that before. Mm. Okay, So a first-time fund, I would not do. Um, I would go to a seasoned fund, and I would ask to meet the entrepreneurs that were part of their first fund. Um, yeah. Not the ones who did times 10, not the ones who did times zero, but those who did times one and a half. Hmm. Uh, because those will probably be the most interesting companies in portfolio to talk to. Um, because they will be able to tell you what the fund, how the fund behaves when basically you didn't go bankrupt. So yeah. you're, you're not, you're not, we're not angry at you. We're not yeah. sour at you. Yeah, they still care about you. Yeah. But you didn't do times, times 10. And so you were not at the level of the aspiration. And, and it's in that small multiple that you really see what's the real DNA and what's the real culture of a fund. Oh, that's interesting. If you meet an entrepreneur who says, well, I did one and a half and I'll never work with those investors again, that's a pretty good uh, signal to understand that that fund is uh, aggressive, uh, dominant, you yeah. know, like uh, whatever qualificative you want to add. Absolutely. Maybe to, to wrap up the, the, the reactor part, can you share a bit about uh, one of the products you mentioned was, was uh, Network CapEx. Um, yeah. What is, what is the value proposition there? Why, if, if, I'm a, if I'm a telco here in Europe or in, in the US, why do I care about that product? So um, in one second, it's pretty simple. If you're the CEO of a telco company, you're currently spending around 15% 15% mm -hmm. of your revenue mm -hmm. in your network. Okay. That's so, hard. yeah, it's hundreds of millions, you yeah. know, like, um, if not billions. So it's, it's the biggest envelope um, in, a, in a telco's um, budget. Yeah. So, so it's humongous. Mm -hmm. And when you ask a CEO 
um, how do you allocate that budget, you often find that the answer is Excel. Yeah, still? It's still Excel. It's actually, um, and the reason why I'm shocked by that, it's, it's because it's such a core process. It's such a strategic process that you know, like it's really you need to go at, at the heart of the telco to be able to talk about capex allocation, and because it's at the heart, this is a process that basically has not changed much in the last ten years. It's been protected because the users are the same, the processes are very clear, and so the tools are still the same. Um, but when you manage Excel, or when you use Excel to manage hundreds of millions um, in decisions. Uh, or billions in decisions mm-hmm. of where you allocate your capex, you realize that you're missing out on a lot of things. Yeah, of course. I'm not just talking about data quality issues and <laughs> and formula mistakes, which are there, mm-hmm. but I'm mostly talking about you don't get any algorithm value, you don't get any you know like uh, big data value, you don't get any putting data together uh, value, you know like um and and all of that allowed us to demonstrate that we could increase the efficiency of your capex by anywhere between 5 and 15%. Yeah. And so if you say that you're spending 100 million in 5G and we're able for 90 to get better results, yeah. uh, that's very significant. Yeah, well it's it's a it's a very clear and easy business case, I guess. Um, but was was it how was it like so I understand the financial numbers behind it? Then convincing telcos to 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 get on board with that. How how is that process like? I, I guess you can't sell this to the to like the the network engineer. You need C level buy in for these kind of tools, right? Or how does that work? The reason why it's it's a difficult sell is not because it's an obvious it's an obvious business case. So that's really yeah, easy. Yeah. The reason why it's difficult is um, there are several reasons. The first is indeed it's a C level decision. Yeah. So you need to basically get the users excited. So that they basically go up to the sea level to say, we need this. Okay, and so that's a a specific type of large enterprise sales, where you basically have a sandwich approach, where you start with the users, you get them excited, in parallel you go towards the top leadership, um, and then basically the top leadership will say, thank you, Monsieur Deletay, let me contact my teams, and that, that message is the most important. Okay, if the teams go back to the C level and say, yes, we know those guys, yes, they're good, yes, we'd like to explore the product, mm. then you start a customer journey. Mm. Um, and if you don't, then you basically continue this process because there are few large enterprises in telco, right? You know, like there are around 20 big groups that you want to work with. Yeah. And so if one connection doesn't work, you just continue other connections until it works. And that's why it's long sales. Yeah. Um, because uh, typically... You know, like you can have anywhere between three and four sponsors and you can have anywhere between five and ten different departments that can start using your app. Yeah. Then the thing that you need to realize is when you do these large enterprise sales, uh, clearly it's a different approach than, you know, like uh, long tail, uh, B2C, web. These are all completely different sales dynamics. And so we were all about um, stakeholder mapping. We were all about sequencing how we approach different people. And we were all about very quickly identifying a client sponsor and a client champion. The sponsor had budget responsibility. The champion was the doer. 
the get shit done guy yeah. or girl that would basically run around a telco and say, this project is going to happen. And when you had that combination, then your likelihood to sell would be more around 40, 50%. Oh, pretty cool. All right. So um, if, if you're going to wrap up the, the reactive chapter there, at some point you decided to, well, I've created this from zero. Here we are. Now I want to start again. Yeah. What was the story there? So um, it, it was really a, 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 a dual story. On one hand, you know, like um, I was in a conflict with my with my investors, and so uh, pretty clearly, you know, like when you get into that type of conflict, it's very difficult um, to uh, say, you know what, let's turn the page, let's move on. Um, not because either party is not willing, but just because it went very very far, mm -hmm. and and so. Um, at the same time that I was basically in conflict with the investors and we were saying, okay, well, we don't really see a path for convergence. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, I was getting approached by a whole set of health actors who wanted me to enter their boards, you know, like um, hospitals, you know, like um, insurances. And they basically came up to me to say, Seb, there's a real change in the industry. Um, data and digital is really top priority for the healthcare space in Belgium. Uh, you're one of the very seasoned and you know, like, um, renowned entrepreneurs in this space. Could you join our board? Because we'd love to have a young perspective on all of the things we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so those two things happened at the same time. And so when, when I submitted my resignation at, at Reactor, I said, okay, well, look, guys, the company is you know, like, um, sustainable, um, you know, like... Uh, We have a successor which is in the company that could take up the CEO role, which is Wim Bohemans. He's a great guy. Yeah. Um, you know, like, uh, trust him more than anyone you know, like, uh, to take up the role of the, the CEO. Uh, the teams are loyal. They're going to continue to make it a great success. Um, since we're diverging, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on. And I'm going to take the next three months or, or so on to explore what can be done in the healthcare space. Yeah. And going back to roots is very fun, you know, like very, very fun because you go back to the point where you have a, a white page. Yeah. You go back to the point where you say, okay, well, with everything I learned with Reactor, how am I going to choose my market? You know, like, am I going to go to the state and try and convince them to uh, give me a private contract for, to redo their entire platform in 10 years? Am I going to go to the Zika Fonds Mutualité? Am I going to go to the hospitals? Am I going to go to doctors? And, and so you see all of those questions, you have a, a blank page. And so I spent four months meeting around 500 people wow. um, to understand the market, understand what was going on, what was exciting, what, what were experiments that worked, what were experiments that didn't work, yeah. and, uh, and basically put all that, pull all that exploration together and and find something fun yeah well that must be it must indeed as you said it must be different this time because when you started reactor from a blank page you had a lot of things to learn and you said a few times in hindsight it would have been this and this differently but here you had a a ton of of background already like a ton of experience um But still, it was a different sector, right? So, so how, according to you, is, is there a big difference between how to approach this in telco versus health, or is, is, doesn't really matter which industry you're in? So, I, I do think that there there are quite some similarities in certain mm -hmm. you know, like sales types. You know, like, and so if you're in 
service you know like uh, you'll have a lot of similarity with another service company even if they don't do engineering but if they do you know, like law you'll have a lot of similar dynamics absolutely um and so on the same side here i wanted it to be a tech company so um i had i turned the page on services that's something i don't want to do anymore in life um so i wanted it to be uh, a product um but a platform a software an app these were all you know, like uh, possibilities yeah. and if i had gone towards hospitals it would have been similar to a telecom dynamic in the sense that you know, like there's a big sea level you know like a uh, dynamic uh, there are a lot of politics you mm-hmm. know like between the different actors in the in the hospital uh, there's a procurement process yeah you know like yeah. which is you know, like uh, you know, like uh, worse than telcos because in this particular case it's it follows the guidelines of you know like a uh, public markets mm. and um, but so if I had gone towards hospitals it would have been similar to telcos um, if I had gone towards doctors then it's different from reactor because there I'm more speaking with a long tail. Yeah, you know, like, um, there's a lot of doctors out there. There are a lot of doctors. You know, okay. like, um, and so if I had basically worked with doctors, that would have been different. Yeah. Because there you're much more in the dynamics about what you'd find with uh, SaaS companies, yeah. with sales development reps, business development reps, yeah. reporting to an account executive. Um, and there's a lot of cold calling. There's you know, like a number of conversions that are expected each month. Um, and then you have the customer success uh, teams that, that are basically in charge of the renewals. Yep. Um, and so the good news is that after all of this exploration, um, I've actually found um, a new company that I'm going to become the CEO of. The CEO? And wow, congratulations. It's, it's a company that's called Medispring. And mm-hmm. what they do is um, practice management software for doctors. Yeah. And if I talk to you about like next time you go to your doctor uh, you'll see that he has a software on his computer and when you come into the office he types your name Chris Peters and his list of patients and then he selects you he has basically all the history of all the consultations you've had with him and then he's going to add a new consultation and say okay well Chris ah, you have a headache okay well I'm going to prescribe this uh, and then I'm going to directly sync this consultation with the e-health platform at the state level um, and so that software, which does something that every doctor needs to deliver, every doctor provides consultations. Um, it's a very, I wouldn't say boring software, but it's a, like it's, it's a pretty normal software. Yeah, yeah, it's very operational. It's, it's, it's very operational. Exciting. It's just enter information, log the information. And voilà. And it's, it's yeah. moving away from paper and going towards digital. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so if it was just that, you know, like uh, maybe it, it wouldn't be a very exciting opportunity for me. The reason why I find it very exciting is because uh, Medispring is a cooperative of doctors. And so it's a thousand GPs, generalists across Belgium that had said, well, we want to create our own software. And so 1000 in Belgium, that's 10%. Yeah. So 10% of the GPs in Belgium said, let me create a cooperative where we're going to be the shareholders and the users. Yeah. And why did they do that? Because uh, there must be other software out there as well, right? So they're, they're, the market has been there for nearly 40 years. Okay. So there have been lots of softwares. There have been a lot of softwares that have been bought 
by by different players and so you'd, you'd basically consider that there are three bigger players okay and we're the fourth entrance right. the, um, the, um, the the reason why they decided to create a cooperative is because the software they used to use got bought yeah and so they were confronted with an opportunity which was to say well do we just migrate to the other software of the company that bought us mm-hmm. or do we create the cooperative and so that was the trigger okay with that trigger we basically have a huge community of users uh, we basically have people that are giving feedback to the software every day yeah uh, and so that feedback loop for continuous improvement is there um, and then imagine that this dynamic with 10% of the GPs in Belgium if it becomes viral And if we go from 10% to 20, 30, 40% of GPs, then we're not a software anymore. Then we become a platform. Yeah. You see, because there's so much consultations, there's so much um, information which mm-hmm. is created through our software mm-hmm. um, that basically at that point, you can ask yourself all of the fancy questions on why isn't Belgium the capital for uh, healthcare, digital healthcare in Europe? Yeah. And, um, and so that's what I'm excited by. It's to say, well, with an initiative driven by GPs who are in charge of the data encoding, yeah. if we get sufficient mass, then we can really participate in the healthcare transformation for the entire country. Yeah. And I think that's cool. Well, super exciting. Wow. Well, congratu- congratulations. So have you already started or when is this... Uh... So I started end of uh, last year. Um, yeah. They called me the night before Christmas. <laughs> and um, they called me and they said, Seb, uh, what are you doing tomorrow? I say, well, it's Christmas. You make a... <laughs> Having dinner with my family. <laughs> and uh, so, Seb, we have, we have a few fires. Do you, could you come over? And what I discovered is that um, they, they basically started to develop their own software in a period of like five, six months. Um, that software had had a bit of testing, but not a lot of testing. Yeah, and it's, it's not a lot of time to write medical software. Right? It's not a lot of time. And so what they managed to deliver in that time horizon with a whole set of partners is absolutely excellent. You know, like, uh, yeah. It's a real achievement. Yeah. Um, but obviously, when you go into the next question, which is, okay, well, now you have the software. How are you going to migrate around a thousand doctors okay, from their old software with all of their data? You need to migrate that data yeah. into the new software. You need to basically, ha- you have one data model, uh, yeah. which is different from the data model you're going to have. You're going to have people that have, will have hacked the data model, encoded things they were not supposed to encode in, in certain buckets. Yeah. And when you're going to import that into your, into your um, new uh, DB... It's always uh, a mess. It's always it's g- ugly. It's going to be ugly. Yeah. And the reason why they called me the night before Christmas is because they started migrating a thousand doctors... Uh, with a migration code that had never been tested. <laughs> and so that's a recipe for failure, right? There's, <laughs> yes. no, yeah, there's yeah, no tech yeah. professional that would say, mm, good idea. No, it's uh, never I've a good idea. I've never seen a migration go right the first time. Never, ever. The, the thing yeah. is, they were so constrained on time because their old software would stop working on the 31st of January. Um, basically, what we did between the, the, the night before Christmas to basically the 31st of January was just work like crazy weekends, nights. Yeah. Um, that was a really, really intensive period. But um, the good news was we managed to migrate everyone. Um, everyone is wow. very loyal to the cause and to the cooperative. And so we actually lost nearly no clients in this whole process. Yeah. Um, and since basically the end of last month, 
we're in a dynamic where every two weeks we make a release where we continue to improve the, the software. Um, and there are definitely lots of things the software could do better. You know, like it's a real, by definition, V1. Um, but what, what I find tremendous is uh, we're showing a new face yeah. to uh, product management for doctors. Yeah. Um, because we're really showing to them what it means to have a great product, what it means to have continuous development, what it means to basically say, you know what, uh, on this foundation where there's no tech debt, where we're directly in the right frameworks, you know, like um, this, this is going to be very, very exciting for the next couple of years. Because I guess they're used to yearly release cycles and very ugly software that nobody cared about the UI or the UX. Um, and you're trying to give them uh, an improved uh, customer journey. Is, 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 is that uh, your approach? How, how are you going to differentiate from the, the three big monoliths that are out there? So um, undeniably, you know, like, uh, there's, some, there's some software, when you look at it, you wonder how they still function in 2019. You know, like, um, yeah. um, interfaces that come from the 80s Microsoft Access lookalikes. You know, like, uh, and I mean ugly, you know, like really, really bad. And there's still people paying every month to, to use that Access-like software. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Real, real nightmares. And um, the reason why doctors have not had the reflex to seek better products or to switch um, is doctors generally don't like technology. They associate it with administrative burden. The, the few doctors I know definitely, they, 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 well, they hate technology. They just want it to work and leave them alone. Yeah. Exactly. And that's the next thing is when it doesn't work, the reflex is scream at the IT guy. Yes. You know, like, um, and so for those reasons, the relationship between doctors and the potential of technology has not been very good, especially when you look at the interfaces they have. It's complicated. Yeah. You know, like um, you, you need to think like crazy to say, well, what am I supposed to do next? Yeah. You know, like uh, usability, uh, customer experience, you know, like um, or just even basic design are things that they have never experienced. You know, like uh, they've just had this crappy software for years. And and so that combined with the fact that migrating is a very painful experience because you you sometimes you lose a bit of data. Uh, maybe some of the data goes into the wrong space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things that you were able to do with your old software, you're not able to do with the new one. And so all of these elements of change also explain why it's a market that has not had much like yeah. switching or much churn. But the, um, the reason why I'm hopeful that this dynamic will be different is because we're going to be able to show what it means to have a real tech company, awesome. like, which is owned by doctors, but managed by professional tech Tech guys who've been there, who've done, who've been that. there, who know what it, who like you know, who who know what QA means, you know, like uh, <laughs> in migration code. We know what that means. You know, like we know how to deliver that. Yeah. But um, and so that's one element, which is let's compete on features. Yeah. You know, like um, I I was at the MIT Innovators Under Thirty Five Europe yeah, um, in November, and I saw innovations there. Yeah. That we need to put into the software, you know, like mind-boggling stuff, you know, like, uh, and too early to tell. But that's one angle. Yeah. Let's let's make a great product. Let's really bring it up to cutting-edge innovation, yeah. as the type of innovations you see at MIT. Um, but then you also can compete on values, you know, like, because the reason why this initiative is really fundamentally different, it's not the feature set. 
you know, like um, it's actually the value set. It's saying, do you want to be part of this movement, yeah. of this community of doctors who are basically bringing the change to the Belgian dynamic? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like, um, and this is led by doctors. Yeah. These yeah, are doctors that are deciding what makes sense for them. N not some big corporate in France or France, uh, yeah. VC led or whatever. Yeah. You know, like, um, and and that for me is is I'm very hopeful about that. They almost sound communist here. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I mean, the some people might draw parallels from you know, like my experience at Reactor, going from a let's say VC funded, you know, like high growth, you know, like tech hey. startup, you know, like. Uh, which is kind of the traditional path towards um, becoming the tech CEO of a cooperative. Yeah, yeah. That I, I, I'm not a founder. You know, like I'm joining it very early on, but I'm technically not a founder. Yeah. And a cooperative, which means that there will never be exit value. You know, like, um, and so here, uh, I'm not sacrificing the high growth dimension. I'm not sacrificing the desire to have an amazing product. Um, those things I have in common with both, uh, but clearly I'm going to be testing a different governance model, yeah. and I'm I'm pretty curious to see whether um, creating tech companies through cooperatives might become a bigger trend. Yes, I've never even thought of that because when when you compared VCs to partners, well now you have a thousand partners, right? You have a thousand partners that all have their own wishes and desires, and it's not going to be the, the easiest governance model, I guess. I think, you know, like it's one of the things I learned well of governance is, you know, like it, if you manage expectations well, it's already a big part of the battle. You yeah. know, like um, if at some point people expect you to do times two and then you do plus 10%, it's an expectation problem. Yeah. You know, like um, then here, if you promise that your software is going to do everything for every user uh, in six months, you, you're really bad at expectations. If you tell them, look, uh, we're not going to be able to satisfy everyone's needs. Um, and but let us explain to you how we're going to satisfy as many people as possible. Let us explain to you how we're going to listen to your needs and maybe reshape them a bit. Mm. Uh, let us explain to you how our highest priority is to make you very happy doctors. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm pretty confident that that type of expectation will lead to you know like much happier users promoters. Uh, mm. And and you know, like all of the dynamics that are associated. Yeah, but even even one step further, as a patient, I sometimes see my doctor like spending way too much time on his machine or his computer. Is like, you should be here for me. Like, I'm a patient in need now. Listen to me. Take care of me, and, and don't worry about your your computer. Right. So if you succeed in making it as easy as possible for the doctors to interface with your solution. The doctors will spend more time with their patients. I mean, that, that's in the end, I guess, what they care about most, right? And and that's that's typically the whole dimension where, like, we can go further mm. than uh, free text boxes. We can go further than you know, like encoding everything. You know, like, um, there's amazing work that's been uh, that's taking place around speech to text. Automated ah, yeah. classification, natural language processing, yeah. you know, like, um, and 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 so there's there, there's some cool things that are happening. Yeah. Uh, it's just that for the moment they're not happening in Belgium, and I would love that that change and that we actually really demonstrate that you know, like, um, uh, Belgium is a capital in Europe for biotech. It's a capital for big pharma. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, or why not we make it a capital for digital health? Yeah. You're like, um, I'm, I'm delighted that London is doing, making great investments and making it happen. I'm delighted that Copenhagen, you know, like, uh, um, or um, uh, Estonia be other cities and countries that do the same. Yeah, it should be here. But it should be Belgium. Yeah. You know, like, well, I, uh, I know the city of Leuven is, is actively promoting health as well. They, they try to, they try to uh, grow that community of health and tech as, as much as they can as well. Yeah. And yeah. and you, it also means because in in Leuven you basically have the uh, the Uze Leuven yeah. who's who's the university hospital uh, that's doing a lot of custom build you see yeah. and so here the whole dynamic is going to be how can we make sure that we create champions that have European potential rather than you know like uh, local initiatives mm -hmm. that you know, like basically lock up a city. Yeah. Um, which which is a different way of looking at it. But yeah. I've done both at RIA. I did custom IT and I did products. And with custom IT, you have high tailor work. You have high you know, like uh, matching with the local needs, yeah. but you don't have anything that's scalable. And that um, and that's really what I what I think we need to set up is that ecosystem of healthcare digital healthcare champions. And have the ambition to kind of conquer Europe. Cool. So you also have the ambition to conquer Europe? Sure. We're going yeah. to start with Belgium because yeah. you basically this is where we have our community of users. Yeah. Um, and uh, and 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 I think from Belgium you have a very easy kickoff ground to go to a whole set of other countries. Wow. Wow. Um, but um, but I think if we're able to prove that our formula works, that a community community led community led tech uh you know like um initiative um is able to grow and be successful and have even better standards than mm. some of the softwares that are on the market um well then let's let's do this super exciting wow well so maybe that brings us to our next topic is how do you see in broad terms the, the future of data you you've been in this space ever since you created your first excel model at mckinsey i guess or ever since you were an assistant of physics <laughs> so, so uh, you, you've seen quite a lot of trends uh, in two industries now, telco and, and health. Where, where do you see data evolving? How do you see data evolving in the next five to ten years? I'm, I'm going to give a pretty boring answer. I think the, you know, like, um, I, I think we're going to pretty much be in the continuation of a lot of the trends that are already there. And so, for example, there's a whole trend around, you know, like better data quality, you know, like automated yeah. cleaning, um, automated integration. But it's not sexy. I mean, I, it's, I like it's it. Not sexy. I like it, but it's not sexy. It's not sexy, but I think that's just going to continue to take a lot of, of uh, room. Um, and, and it's just going to become like those problems are going to become smaller and smaller, you know, like um, because, you know, like it's crazy. Um, the other day, I was just cleaning up my contact database mm -hmm. and the amount of tools that will automatically fill in areas, automatically recognize first names, last names, test phones, eliminate numbers that are good or not good. Like these are problems that we would spend hours and man days to create yeah. code to do. And so there's a huge trend around just you know, like going as far as you can on automating that data quality. Um, I think there's the huge trend around... Um, that was started with you know, like data visualization 
yeah. um, Tableau, Click, you know, like, um, that's going to continue around this mass commoditization. You know, like, um, it's incredible, but even Google with G, G Sheet is actually yeah. contributing tremendously to the diffusion of you know, like, um, uh, data for all. You know, like, um, and so that I'm pretty sure is going to continue to occur. Okay. Um, and it's not going to be driven by SaaS, by IBM, uh, or by the big companies that had certification programs. Uh, it's going to be driven by you know, like um, um, Python, you know, like R, you know, like a whole set of other softwares that that can be readily available and open source and open sourced. You know, like um, the um, the other trend which which I find you know, like uh, very exciting is. And it's going to be at the expense of a lot of the data scientists, you know, like or rather data analysts, is mm. that there's going to be a huge movement towards automation. Yeah. Um, on you know, like saying, you know, what there are a whole set of analyses that we know that need to be produced, no brainer. And and uh, I understand what type of field is in the database, and so when that field is there, this is what people generally like to do. Yeah. Um, we were already on that trend, you know, like five years ago. We called it guided analytics. We would create, we would produce tags to identify certain types of patterns in all sorts of, of you know, like uh, distributions. Mm-hmm. Um, companies uh, like Trendminer would do the same thing, yeah. not in telco but in industrial um, uh, sectors. Um, but it's the same thing. So that trend is going to continue to take place. Uh, so you're going to see a hu- huge um, uh, traction around. Um, around automation um, and then the last two trends that I find exciting is you're going to have um, uh, it's not a ping pong but it's more like a, an equilibrium a balancing f- a mechanism yeah. that, that's going to take place around um, privacy um, and, uh, and GDPR okay and so for the moment you know, like a regulation has gone very much on one side. You're yeah. going to see that there's going to be the pendulum is going to go in the other direction, where you know like other elements of respecting privacy are going to appear, new types of algorithms, um, having the possibility to extract a pattern without you know like uh, compromising uh, privacy. Uh, for me, is going to be a huge you know like uh, trend uh, for the future of um, for the future of data, um, and uh, yeah, and we're going to be. Um, and then the last trend or the last hope I have yeah. is that we're going to be breaking uh, the monopolies of a very educated um, AI. Um, for the moment, you know, like, um, uh, companies like, like Google have always been smart around acquiring data. You know, yeah. like, uh, yeah. um, the, they've been the smartest of making sure that every initiative uh, that they launched would be launched in the direction of acquiring extra data. Yeah. Uh, and so when they have cars that scan streets that populate Google Maps, it creates huge value for everyone. Uh, the side effect is they've created a huge database of a whole set of, of, of things. Um, the, um, when you look at Google Pictures mm. you know, that they've le- used to train their vision algorithms, mm. Uh, when you look at scanning old books uh, in order actually um, not only to have a history of characters and a history of literature, they've also had the same book translated by professional translators in lots of different languages. And so when you get a book like The Little Prince 
translated in 50 different languages, all of those relationships um, can be fed into an AI to improve your translation um, uh, capabilities. And so the reason why I'm talking about this is because we both know that in the field of data, if you have a lot of data, you do get a competitive edge that your competition is going to have a very hard time recreating because of that huge cost of putting that data together. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I really do think that there's going to be a huge shift in the market around um, um, are we going to have public and open source data? Yeah. Okay. And that when data reaches a certain mass, uh, does it continue to belong to a private individual or does it, or a company or does it then start to belong to other parties? Yeah. And um, and that trend for me is is very exciting. It's more the revolutionary trend where you basically say, okay, well, data is going to continue to professionalize. It's going to continue to be seamless. It's going to continue to be invisible. Mm-hmm. Um, but on this front, um, are we going to break, you know, like the AI monopolies? Yeah. Um, because here, that trend is 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 phenomenal. It's going to change everything we do. Um, and so do we really want that to belong to a, s- a limited number of companies? Yeah, all of them American at the moment. All of them or Chinese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah indeed, we, here in Europe, we don't have a lot of counterweight uh, against those big companies at the moment, right? Um, we don't. And it's really, it's, it's a mix of, you know, like... Um, um, we're, we're not competing with the same funds. You know, like at some point... You know, like um, how much is Google paying for their top AI scientists? You know, like uh, we're in tens of millions of dollars per year. You know, like um, it's at some point where you know, like uh, CEOs of you know, like publicly traded companies are paid less than the lead AI engineer in these type of companies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and obviously, that market value is driven by demand and by the fact that they're super, super rare. Um, but so in Europe, who, which company could put 20 million to recruit one guy? Well, it creates a brain drain, right? So. It creates a brain drain. And so for me, the only way that we um, help um, European champions uh, uh, to emerge is by changing the rules of the game. And so you can change the rules of the game when you think about ownership of data. Mm-hmm. Um, that is one way to trigger uh, a, a change in the balance and a change in the leverage. And so it's really, if you point, put the leverage here, then you'll be able to move the whole finger. Um, whereas if you put the leverage there, you're going to have a hard time moving the whole finger. And so it's really a question of what's, what's your point of leverage. Um, ownership of data is, is one dimension. And then there's this uh, next dimension, which is, well, if you create this disruption, um, call Europeans that are abroad because there are lots of Europeans that are in China or in the US say hey now is the time that that we really make a difference here Um, and there is this trend of successful entrepreneurs that want to come back home and say I've ticked the box of being a millionaire Um, (laughs) and so now I can really just do this for the for the shits and giggles and let's make this fun you know like uh, and uh, for the moment there's some exciting things happening in the Nordics Uh, in Finland Sweden you see a lot of um, ex-US entrepreneurs that are coming back home um, and uh, and so now it's just that we need to continue that trend and make it stronger wow cool 
One final question. You shared quite a few lessons learned already, but um, looking back, are there other things you would say um, uh, from all your experience you had, um, both working at McKinsey and starting your own company, creating it up until a point where it was a big scale up and then restarting all over again, um, now joining a health company? Uh, what are some of the biggest lessons learned? What are some of the things that you would do differently now? So, so there, there are a million things. Um, but I, I think the, the two points that I had already covered um, during this discussion is, uh, one, um, don't think pivots are easy. Okay? Um, and if you do decide to pivot, find people who have done it before and who will bring their experience into your pivot. Yeah. Um, if you just go it, you know, like uh, blindsided, running uh, in the dark, it's likely you're going to hit the wall. The second piece of advice that I gave is uh, be careful when you choose your partners. And these partners can be who you've found the company with. It can be um, who you raise money with. It can be who you actually go in sales with, etc., etc. Um, but but those things are things that you really need to consider are very difficult to change once they've done. Uh, you're done. And the good way to analyze your partners is to talk to their references not the ones who are superstars, not the ones who are super failures, but the guys in the middle. Yeah. They're the guys that are going to tell you the most about how, how your partner is going to behave when things don't follow the plan. Um, the, the, last, the last dimension, um, or maybe the last goodie or lesson learned that I can share is um, the, the meaning of the word focus yeah. has never stopped changing for me. Um, and it's always gone to more, 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 more focus. Yeah. And um, the analogy I like to use is to say, you know, when when you look at the size of the sun compared to the size of planet Earth, yeah, yeah, planet Earth is focus compared to the sun. Um, and you can go in the other direction, and what are the bigger and bigger stars, and and then yeah. the sun. Is focus. is focus versus the largest stars in the universe. Yeah. Um, but every time that I thought I was focused, I say, ah, oh, now I'm focused. Look, I'm planet Earth. Yeah. And then I realize, mm, well, on planet Earth, well, then I can be Belgium. You know, like, and now I'm focused and I'm Belgium and that's focus. And then you realize that within Belgium, you can continue to go down. Yeah. Um, and so the reason why I use this analogy is because... Um, the number of times where I could have signed a contract or bet you a thousand euros that I'm, I'm a super focused company uh, and I was wrong, I stopped counting them. You know, yeah. like um, the number of times I could have said, no, that's a different persona. We are not able to address the needs of that persona yeah. or no, that's a, com that's, a, that's a feature request that opens up this you know, like, uh, type of complexity into the yeah. software. We might want that in the future. We don't want that today. And the number of dimensions that I brought into products way too early, you know, like, uh, oh, well, when you want your app to be compatible in several languages, yeah. then directly everything in your front end needs to be translated into every language you add. People underestimate it. They underestimate the, the amount of effort. That doesn't mean you should only be monolanguage, but it's just when do you want to introduce that? Yeah. Because the amount of work that you're adding in QA, uh, you need 
you need dummy data sets in all of the other languages to be able to show that this, the app delivers what it needs in every different language. Uh, you, you then need to have QA profiles that are able to see the differences in the different languages. Um, that means that every time you're going to make a release, you're going to have translators gonna, that are going to be working on adding all of that. And the reason why I'm using the example of language is because it's understandable by everyone. But mm. there are lots of other dimensions where I said, okay, well, um, do we have a mobile app for our users? Yes or no? Is that mobile app on-premise or in the cloud? Um, yeah. How am I going to manage the sync uh, when there's bad connectivity? All of these questions uh, created tremendous uh, complexity down the road. Mm. And when we started them, we said, oh, it's easy. We're just going to use Microsoft Azure. We're going to be cloud-based. This is how uh, we're going to uh, sync the um, exchange of data uh, with the on-premise uh, uh, servers. And, and then you realize one, two years down the road that those decisions were some of the most costly you've introduced. Yeah. Um, because you lacked focus, and often because you lacked um, some form of, of understanding of, of the architecture choices yeah. that you were introducing. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thanks very much for the conversation. It's always well, an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. And I wish you best of luck with your new startup slash scale up. Thank you. Very Thank much. you, Chris. <laughs>